Morning again, guys. Are you guys scared of Dave? Is that what's going on with the two empty rows up here? Um, as Karen mentioned, we have Dave Prince here. Um, for those of you who are new or visiting, Dave is the head pastor of Living Word Church in Lansing. Um, it's under his leadership and guidance that we've planted Cross Point, which is in Crown Point five years ago. Five? Four? Four and a half. And we planted here a year ago. Um, and it's awesome. And we're blessed to have Dave with us to share the word. Dave, if you want to come on up. Um, I'm going to call a slight audible that you weren't informed of. Um, Brett has a quick video he's going to play. Um, Good morning, Mercy Hill. As you all know, we are on the cusp of our second year of ministry here in Highland, and we're very excited. We've got some new changes coming your way. From now on, we will not have live preaching, but we will have video preaching. That way, I will never have to miss the game. I can preach from the comfort of my own living room, and I don't have to talk to anybody. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, this morning I'm at Cross Point Church, and this morning Dave Prince will be with you sharing the Word of God. And Dave, we are so grateful for the labor and the love and the prayer and the support that you have given us as a church. We truly could not have done this unless you and the other elders and all of Living Word had not supported us and believed in us and really sent us out with faith and blessing. So thank you. We want to give you this book as a small token of our appreciation for all that you've done. Like Johnny said, Dave, this is the book. It's just to commemorate our one year. Um, it's kind of a timeline. Walks through everything we've done, the basketball camp, the different outreaches. Um, so that's for you. Um, thank you for the part you've played in planning us, and we wouldn't be here without you. That is a treat. That's really nice. I'm just going to sit up here and look through it for a while. <laughs> I'll do that later. Well, thanks, Adam and Johnny. And uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, it's really great to be here. I was, uh, I was telling the first service that uh, this, is my, this weekend was my 20-year college reunion. So, yeah, so can do the math. Yeah, thank you. And uh, you're going to have like your first year of college reunion next, next week, isn't it? Right, Larry? Anyway, so it's always fun to, to do that. And I had some great friends in college, and I loved going back and being with them. We had a, we had a great time. A bunch of, bunch of the old crew was back together. So it was really great. But I was driving up there in my nine-year-old minivan, and I got to thinking, maybe I should have rented a car for the weekend or something, you know? Because <laughs> there's always that pressure to look successful or feel like, you, you know, what are you doing for a living? Well, I'm... The CEO of American Airlines, and I, you know, that kind of thing. So, and there wasn't much of that, but as I left, and I, I have some friends doing some great things, running companies, and they're, you know, CEOs, and they're, they're um, financial people, consulting, you know, multimillionaire types, and so I was just like, well, everyone's doing their own stuff, and uh, as I was sitting here this morning in the, the first service and worshiping, I thought, you know what? Success for me looks like churches that are loving the Lord, that are growing, that are reaching people, um, that are like Mercy Hill. And so I was really encouraged this morning coming off the college reunion to think, this is, this is what I'm up to, and this is what I'm, I, and I just see God's hand in it and God's success. So I just want to thank everyone here that's worked so hard this year and that gives their all to Mercy Hill and to the Lord. I just want to honor you and bless you for that. Because it's been a good year. You guys have made it through the first year. There's many new people here. Um, there's most of the old people here. And, uh, 
it's exciting to see what the Lord has really established during the first year at Mercy Hill. And I'm looking forward to the second and third and fourth and fifth years as great years of impact and growth and where the power of the Spirit really does cause this to be what the church is supposed to be. Amen? Anyway, so it's a privilege to be here. And uh, I'm excited to have Johnny at Crosspoint and uh, John Leitzel at Living Word this morning. And I'm a little nervous about what Leitzel's saying this, you know. <laughs> but uh, there'll be an accountability to that as well. So let's pray and let's, we'll open up God's Word. And we trust that there's a real message from the Lord to us this morning, right? Okay. Father, we just say thank you. God, I say thank you, Lord, for um, just thank for that book and the thoughtfulness that went behind that and all that it means. Uh, as this church has really honored you this year, and uh, God, not not in our own perfection, but in your grace and in your strength, Lord, we believe that you are doing a great work here. And so, God, thank you for that. Thank you for all those who've labored and who've served and who've given, and Lord, who carry this church in their heart and where this is their home and their family. God, I pray for all those, God, that, Lord, are yet to be reached by Mercy Hill or by Living Word or by Cross Point. God, that this next year would be a great, fruitful year of harvest. Lord, we'd see people come to encounter you in real ways and be transformed. God, we see folks really grow and grow in a deeper understanding and the knowledge of Jesus. God, we'd see great joy and delight in the midst of it all. Thank you, Lord, that we are, though different churches, really a family, a community of people, God, that you love. And so, God, I pray that you'd bless people this morning. I pray, God, that as we go through your word, that your word would go through us. God, you do some business in our hearts today. That God, you'd encourage and strengthen and convict and change. And God, we leave here in a place having said, man, we really met with God this morning. And uh, so I pray you give me just the grace I need, Lord, to communicate this boldly as I should. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so open your Bibles to Psalm 42. As you're aware, you will... Uh, We've been going through the Psalms together as a group of churches. And so today for you guys is Psalm 42. This is my fourth time preaching this message. And so I don't think I've ever preached a message that many times. But as I approach it, it's, it's fresh in my heart. This is a powerful, powerful passage. And as we read it, and I'm about to read it, I want you to understand something. that This is not just a nice little platitude for your encouragement. Say, oh, that's a nice thought for today. As we read Psalm 42, this psalm represents an epic battle in the heart of the psalmist, in the life of the nation of Israel, and in our own hearts. This psalm is not some little encouragement to help motivational thought to get you through the day. This psalm is about an epic battle for hope. An epic battle that we all encounter, that we all face at some point. If you like that, epic battle imagery and maybe you'll like the, the Lord of the Rings picture where you got two armies and you get that great speech before the last battle, right? There may be a day when the hearts of men fail, but it will not be this day. And then, you know, they attack for Frodo. If you're a little bit older, maybe, maybe Braveheart, right? Would be the one freedom and they all, you know, But this, this, is an, this is a very real thing for us. And as we read these words, make no mistake, there is an epic battle at hand in our hearts. And God wants to have His way. And that battle is for hope in small ways and in large ways. 
That battle is that God would be honored even though our situations and our circumstances are often overwhelming. And we hear that in the voice of the writer of this psalm. Read with me, Psalm 42. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While men say to me all day long, where is your God? And these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. But my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the height of Hermon, heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and all your breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, as my foes taunt me. They say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Amen. Boy, as you read this psalm, it is, it's, it almost feels a bit schizophrenic. Because on one hand, he's saying, I will hope in God. But on the other hand, he's saying, I am being crushed right now. I am being devastated by life right now. I mean, he is, when he says, my bones taste mortal agony. I mean, it is a deep soul gut-wrenching, even physical battle that he's encountering. Let's take a look at really what's happening here because obviously he is in a bad way. Discouragement, despair. And it's not the kind of discouragement and despair that's, that's just private because we all have those times and we just collapse into despair or self-pity or just awful things internally. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. But no one else really knows. But you're just devastated on the inside. And you can go days, weeks, months, God forbid, years being devastated internally. People may never know. And that is a bitter, bitter thing. But this, this, it's more than that. It's that and then some. Because this is not only personal inner turmoil. This is public disgrace. It's not even private. It's public Everybody knows about it. So much so that his enemies actually taunt him. Nana, nana, boo, boo. Where's your God? Look at all that awful things happening to you. Ha! Maybe even an I told you so. I mean, this is a guy, this is a guy that's tasting the bitter things of life. And it's brutal for him. 
keep in mind this is this isn't David, but the psalm writers they were the levites they were the they were the worshipers they were the pastors and professional minister people and he's writing this because we all face it we all go through times when our inner world just seems to be collapsing and our outer world and it gets exposed and people know it and they see it and they judge us because of it and those who would want an upper hand might even exploit it The language he uses here is not a pleasant little platitude written by Hallmark to put on a card. These are the gut-wrenching things of life. Look at some of the other terminology. His enemies are taunting him. He feels like he's been abandoned. Downcast, disturbed. Even here in, um, it's really interesting, verse 7 says, Deep calls out to deep. The roar of your waterfalls and all the waves and your breakers have swept over me. That's imagery from the geography of Israel. You'll see he's talking about the mountains and the different lands. And there's a place where the Jordan begins where there's waterfalls and stuff like that. But what he's expressing is, I I am being buried by this stuff and I'm drowning. I mean, that's pretty graphic stuff for the Bible, isn't it? This is gritty. I mean, we often think the Bible is, you know, it's got a lot of nice sayings and, you know, love one another and do unto others and stuff like that. Ah, those are helpful things. The Bible deals with the grittiness of life and it exposes the beautiful as well as the wretched. And though these words are ancient, thousands of years old, these words are, they are relevant to us today because they describe the human condition. And we see this battle for hope. It's really, it's fascinating because the Psalms themselves, they deal with our emotions. They deal with the way we feel and the way we experience our inner worlds, affected by our outer world. That's the beautiful thing about the Psalms. They, they help acknowledge that our emotions come from God. God has given us emotions, good ones and bad ones. We've made in His image and likeness that God Himself has emotions, experience joy and, and grief. That God has given us these emotions is a gift to us. It's a beautiful, precious thing. They're intensifiers. They're enhancers. That our joy would be sweeter and our grief would even be that much more bitter. These emotions are not evil things. They're a gift from God. But the problem with our emotions is they often will run our lives. They will often be the key energy source for whether we can live or die. Our emotions are powerful. And we see them rage in this psalm and we know that they rage in our lives. But the Bible, this psalm is not just to acknowledge our emotions, but it also is to instruct us. And this is the key part. Because in that epic battle, raging for hope, we see it played out here. We know it's played out in our own lives. But this psalm instructs us how to fight in that battle. How to win in the battle. Because it's not about whether or not we just hope we win or live by our emotions or let's just see what happens or some sort of super spiritual idea that, well, I'm not going to do anything and God will just have to whatever. No, this psalm gives us instructions 
How we battle for hope in our own soul. It's powerful. So this psalm helps acknowledge and help us to understand that God gets us. But it also says, hey, God gets us so much that he instructs us how to fight and how to live as men and women of hope. Another preacher said this, and I'll quote him. John Piper writes, The Psalms, this in this psalm in particular, but the Psalms are to shape what the mind thinks and intended to shape what the heart feels. Now listen, that's a revolutionary concept because our culture, we live in a world where what our heart says is gospel. What our emotions feel are true. You've had that argument with people. Maybe you've had it in your marriage where, so I just feel this way. Well, if someone feels that way, there's nothing we can do about it, right? Because if you feel it, I got to say, well, it's a valid feeling. And okay, that's fine. There's nothing I can say. Feelings always seem to trump whatever else is going on around us. And sadly, feelings will trump truth. And we see in the scripture, this passage, something so powerful. Because here the psalmist is right before our very eyes, shepherding and nurturing his own heart, his own soul into hope. It's fascinating. It's so countercultural to how we live and think today in our world. But here's, here's the psalmist, and we're gonna, I'm going to break it down, a couple of things he does, to shepherd his heart into hope, even though it's like the worst possible scenario in his life. He's overwhelmed, and yet in the midst of it, he's shepherding his heart into a place of hope. And this is a beautiful definition of what it means to be a mature spiritual man or spiritual woman. And sadly, quite often, we default to just living immature, shallow lives, mad at God, blaming others, without a real sense of persevering hope in our lives. And thank God that he gives us a psalm like this so we can see it laid out before us because it doesn't come natural to us. We need God's help. And here it is. Let me just show a couple different things he does, weapons, as it were, in this epic battle for hope that we see in this psalm. The first one is this. He is honest. He is like gut check honest with us. Now I'm not talking about the honesty, which is like TMI, right? Too much information. Like, yeah, you were sick last week and you're giving me all the gory details. Don't want to know. Thanks for the honesty, but keep it to yourself. Too much information. So I'm not talking about someone that says everything about everything. But here is a guy who has been publicly humiliated and devastated. And he doesn't try to shift or blame or weasel his way out of it. He just honestly declares his grief. He acknowledges it. My heart is downcast. I am despairing within me. I'm done. I'm drowning. It's really powerful. It's actually inspiring to me because I'm not naturally that kind of person. And I admire people like that. I, I see some people that they're just really honest about their struggles. Not the kind of honesty that like throws it on you and makes you feel like garbage. Like now it's your problem because I told you. But the kind of honesty that says, you know what, I, I'm dealing with something and it's not easy. And to be honest, I'm not always winning. Sometimes I just feel like I'm drowning. But this is, this is where it's at. I admire that. 
I admire that. And there's a balance between just puking all over everyone and making them feel like it's their problem. But just owning up to it and saying, this, this is where I'm at and it's not easy for me right now. It's a powerful weapon. Because our tendency, our tendency is to dress up nice on Sunday, comb our hair, make it look good on the outside. And when someone says, how's it going? Fine. Yeah, fine. Are you kidding me? You haven't had a civil conversation with your wife for two weeks. And here you are telling me it's fine. Are you kidding me? You're in constant battle with your parents because you just have no sense of respect for those in authority over you. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. You're living this out in your life and it's just toxic. And you're telling me it's fine? We're just not honest. Or your situation has gotten way out of control. And you know what? You haven't harnessed your emotions. You haven't led your heart well. You haven't conducted yourself right in the midst of it. And it's a disaster. And you're showing up telling me everything's okay? What's the matter with you? What's the matter with all of us? Pretenders. We think that somehow, if we put forth spit clean polished exterior that our interior is going to be affected by that and it's not you just kind of seal in the toxic garbage and eventually it explodes into a real mess a bigger mess and so that kind of honesty i admire it's not easy and knowing how to do it is important because to be honest it's not you don't want to be known as that kind of person that goes around spewing out your problems all the time but in the right place, in the right time, in the right sense of personal ownership of your problems, man, that kind of honesty is admirable. And it's a powerful, powerful weapon. New Testament says, walk in the light as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is all these good things. There's fruit in walking in the light. And yet we, we, we tend to bury, and plant, bury our garbage and plant flowers on it. <laughs> and then it's just not good. All right. There's another part of his honesty, however, that I also want to draw our attention to. He's not only honest about how he's dealing or not dealing with his circumstances, he's also very honest about who God is in the midst of it. That's why it seems so schizophrenic. On one hand, his, his tears are his food all day long. Then on the other hand, it's like verse 8. Verse 8 is like, By day the Lord directs his love. At night... His song is within me. A prayer of hope. A prayer to the God of my life. It's almost schizophrenic. There's medication for that, right? He's this and he's that. And that's the truth. He's both. But he's honest about both. He says, man, am I struggling. But man, is God good. Boy, do I. My bones hurt with my struggle. And yet God is directing his love to me every day. Boy, that's a hard thing to hold, isn't it? Sometimes either all this or it's all that. But to have that kind of confidence in God and, and just, you may not be feeling it, but, but you just know it. God is on the case loving on me. And I am really struggling. I'm buried right now. I tell you what, that is, when the, the psalmist exploiting his own, you know, the battle, that's the battle. In his heart, that's the battle that's raging. God is still great directing his love, and I am struggling. I, um, my roommate, since it's homecoming weekend, 
do college stories. Uh, my roommate has an older brother. My roommate from college um, has an older brother. And uh, his older brother has had three children, and uh, three beautiful children. And uh, a while back, he was coming home from vacation, and uh, he flew into O'Hare. He was pulling his minivan out of the O'Hare parking lot, and uh, they got rammed by a drunk driver. And when the accident happened, the minivan was engulfed in flames. And so he got out, and his wife got out, and he got one of his kids out, but there were two kids in the back seat. And as this minivan was engulfed in flames, he, he, he's in the minivan, and they're trying to pull him out, trying to get him out, so much so that he is getting burned in his arms and his head, and he's, he himself is being engulfed in flames. And finally, they drag him out of there, but the two children in the back seat didn't survive. And um, just an unbelievable, devastating situation. And so we heard about this, and um, we heard about what our buddy was going through with, obviously, his niece, his niece and his nephew. They were just beautiful kids. One was like in eighth grade, and one was in sixth grade, something like that, a little boy and a little girl. And so all of us who are good friends in college, we're calling each other once we find out, and we're like, we need to be there for our buddy. And so one lives in Seattle, and a couple of us live around here, so we all gather together, and we spend the weekend with our buddy whose family is going through such devastation. And so it was sweet, to be honest, just the friendship and the love we had for each other. And here on the table is just this awful, awful thing that happened. And so we go to the funeral. We drive down to Indianapolis, and we go to the funeral. It's this big church, and it's packed. It's full of people. And you could tell the way the pastor is conducting himself. The family is well cared for. It's a, it's a beautiful expression, community of Christ there, loving them. And um, you get the programs, and it's all about celebrating the life of these two beautiful kids. Anyway, so we go through this funeral. We're about two-thirds back. And uh, it's just profound, you know. They're showing videos of the kids and pictures of the kids. And you're just like, oh, such intense grief. And yet such strange joy in the midst of it as they're really acknowledging the power of God to save these kids and bring them to heaven and that kind of thing. Well, we're, we're, we're going through the service and we're right towards the end and we start singing this song, Blessed Be Your Name. And the road filled with suffering when there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And uh, uh, Greg, my friend's, my buddy's brother, Greg's in the front row with his wife and his uh, child. And his head's wrapped in the white gauze because his head's all burned. And his one arm's in a sling and the other arm's wrapped in all that white gauze because he's all burned. And we're singing that song. And we're all just like, and... Uh, Suddenly, in the midst of it, he raises his hands. And we're sitting in the back, and all we see is his gauzed-up head and his melted hand raised to God in the midst of it. And I thought to myself, oh, Father, this must be the sweetest worship you have ever experienced. <laughs> to worship and to raise your hand and to say, God, I love you even now. Even now, oh God. Receive my worship. I thought to myself, Lord, could I someday be like that? Could I quit whining and complaining about the little things and getting all mad at you because I didn't get my way here and there? And could I please come to a place where no matter what happens, I might conduct myself in a manner worthy 
of worshiping such a great God. And we look at the honesty of this psalm and we look at sometimes the shallowness of our life and we think, Lord, I want to be the kind of person who could be absolutely honest about my, the battles I'm facing, wrapped in gauze. But I can be completely honest about your goodness and your grace and the power of God that is never far from me. That is the richness of what I think it really means to know God and to walk with God. It's powerful. And we can glimpse, sometimes, maybe even in moments like this, we can glimpse a heavenly vision of what our earthly life is supposed to look like. This is the battle for hope. And you know what? Sometimes we never even fight in that battle until there are enemies around us. Until we're in the midst of it. Do we finally, finally at one point stand up and say, enough! I am not going to get pushed around anymore. I'm going to acknowledge all the devastation, but I'm going to acknowledge the love of God and the devastation of God. And you know what? At night, it's going to be my song. I'm going to sing it no matter what the day brought. That's the grittiness that we see in this ancient poem, this ancient song. But it is a grittiness and it is the, it is the power of God that we need to experience in our day, in our hearts. Honesty is a powerful weapon. A powerful, powerful weapon. The second one, the second weapon that he has is this. He remembers twice in his psalm, he says, I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession, shouting for joy and thanksgiving among the celebration. Here's the thing. When, when we're engulfed in the, just the troubles that we face, we lose all perspective. We lose any sense of all the great things God has done and all the great things that God has promised. And we're simply engulfed in our little problem, which seems enormous at the time. But a powerful weapon to battle for hope is this idea of remembering. They said that sorrow comes at the night, but what comes? Joy comes in the morning. Let's remember. Boy, it's so easy. Those of you who are married or... I mean, in, in any of our circumstances, I'm drawn heavily. This psalm speaks so much to me as a husband because I've got the best thing going when it comes to wife and family, the best. And yet there are times when I, I can be so frustrated or I can fall into self-pity or discouragement and, and, and suddenly my perspective gets completely distorted. I'm like, man, she never does that. And it's always bad. Woe is me. I say that to my shame because it's, it's embarrassing to admit. But the truth is, when we go through those things, our perspective gets so distorted. We forget all the amazing things. I forget all the amazing things my wife has done for me. And in that moment, all I can think of, she really loved me. She don't laugh, wives. You do the same thing. 
It's not just marriage. <laughs> All kinds of things. Maybe it's your desire to be married. And suddenly you forget all God's faithfulness to you. And everything in your whole life is wrapped up in that one thing. And you have forgotten all that God has done. How he's miraculously saved your life time and time again. How he's redeemed you from the pit and crowned you with grace and glory. How God has been faithful since you were a little child. And suddenly all you can think about, I'm not getting what I'm wanting. And our perspective gets completely distorted. It's a powerful weapon to remember rightly. And he says, I remember when. I remember when I was in the middle of the party, shouting and giving thanks, dancing, glorifying God. I remember that. And you know what? It'll be again. It'll happen again. And though I'm going through the night, the morning's coming. It's a powerful weapon. Because once the devil can no longer deceive you that, that all is lost, suddenly hope begins to stir again. Say, wait a second. What am I thinking? And hope rises up again and you're a new person. It is always amazing to me that when I'm in the lowest of the lows, I am only inches, inches. We might use metric millimeters <laughs> from being completely restored. Completely restored and then some. Your salvation is nigh. It is not far. It is very close. But we forget these things. And so we must remember. Lamentation says this. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. Praise the Lord for that. Alright. The last one is this. And it's, it's a powerful and profound one. Here in this psalm we see this psalmist directing or discipling his own soul towards hope. He is, he is not a passive player in the battle. He is not someone who is just bowled over by the flood of horses and chariots. He is not simply washed away by the flood. He is an active player in his own battle for hope in his life. And let me explain what that means. He gets to a point where three times, now three times, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 historically have been one psalm put together. Our modern translations breaks it into two and that's fine. But three times in those two psalms that we see, he comes up with this line, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior, my God. It's like he's speaking to his own soul. He's having a conversation with himself. And he's laying down the terms. This is not normal in our society. Typically, when our emotions kick in, we just get washed away in them. But he's saying, no, time out, boom. I have something to say about the matter. And he's, he's, he's cultivating in his own heart, in the midst of the difficulty, a very real sense of hope. Let me read you a quote now by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor and actually a medical doctor as well in London in the previous generation. He wrote this about Psalm 42. He actually wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and it's all based on Psalm 42. This is what he says. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Sounds like he needs medication, doesn't it? Yeah. 
They say you can talk to yourself, you just shouldn't answer. Sorry. Listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back all the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? It's yourself that is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him. His soul has been crushing him. And he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Sounds a little bit like you need medication. It's not just positive thinking. It's not just mind games here. What we speak to our own heart has a direct bearing on where our heart goes. And if we allow our heart and our emotions to cult- just to generate and continue to regurgitate the garbage of this life, so goes our hope. And soon all we're doing is standing in a cesspool, just a dump. Because when we speak to our soul, truth, not fantasy, not wishful thinking, but truth, it cultivates a new tone in our hearts. And it's called hope talked about marriage a couple times but let me just do it again in marriage there is a cd that plays in our minds there is a it goes over and it's on repeat sometimes it's on shuffle you get all kinds of different variations but it's going in our head and for a husband it can be like this you know what she doesn't appreciate me she doesn't really love me nothing i do is good enough and it goes over and over and over and over again and pretty soon you're feeling pretty much like crap because you fed yourself all that garbage and you're just depressed and discouraged. You're like, man, it must be true. I've heard it a thousand times in my head. What the psalmist is saying is eject the CD, take it out of the player, pop it in half and incinerate it in a furnace and pop it in a new CD. You know what? That woman is not perfect, but she loves you. She takes care of you in so many ways and ways you don't even know. She is always there for you. Man, she took your last name. She bore all those children. She has really, she loves you. And no matter what's going on right now, that has not changed. She is committed to love you for the rest of her life. I say, when you start playing that CD, seriously, husbands, start playing that CD like, oh man, that, that woman's amazing. I got to go out and buy some flowers or something. I got to take her on vacation. She did all that for me? Dang. She gave up this beautiful last name and she took my name, Hitzelberger or something. She must love me. That woman, wow. What she has gone through to be my wife. Wives, you got to do the same thing. You can hear it going over and over, the CD playing. Maybe turn the volume down sometimes and maybe turn it up sometimes. I'm just not first in his life. He'd rather be with all the guys. He'd rather be doing something else. He said I'd be first. Like when I was, when we were dating, I like was everything to him. He wouldn't do, he wouldn't even watch football. He wouldn't, all his money was spent on me. Now that we're married, I don't think he knows I'm here. Well, he does because I clean his clothes and I cook him some food. And, but he don't, I'm not precious to him. That's the CD going and going and going. It's time to hit eject. 
incinerate that thing. Put a new CD in there. Man, that, that guy loves me. He's no Romeo, but to be honest, I'm not really Juliet either. He works so hard. He don't like that job of his, but he does it. He'd rather quit that job and do something else, but he's working it. So he's providing money for us. So we've got a decent lot to live. He ain't perfect, but man, what he does, he lays down his life for me. I can see it. Now that I got that stupid CD out of the player, you start playing that CD. You, start, you know what you start thinking as a wife? You start thinking, you know what? Man, I need to go bless that man of mine. I need to go and inspire him to be the best man he can be. And all those flaws I used to be staring at, I'm just going to help, help clean those things up and get right behind them and inspire them to go forward. Because I know that God's given me a great man. And when he stood at that altar and he promised to love me for the rest of his life, he's doing it. He's working it out. I just need to be the best possible wife I can to that man. I'll be his Juliet. <laughs> Girl, whatever, girls, do whatever you want with the CD. I shouldn't write your CD, but um, but there's such a powerful thing when you start putting in the biblical vision, what a husband should be, what a wife can be through the power and the grace of God. When you start playing that CD, cranking the volume a little bit, pretty soon you're like, man, I just, I just love that wife of mine. I love that husband of mine. doesn't matter if you're married or not married. There's all kinds of CDs going on. You, you know what I mean. You single guys, you know the CDs that are playing. I can't be pure. I need a wife. You know them. I'm just going to, whatever. Whatever. I'm just going to do whatever I got to do. I can't be godly. I mean, there's people that can be godly, but I'm just going to be one of those in-between people. Falling into self-pity and all that garbage and compromising the true vision of what God has for your life, men and women. Man, you're single. You just, you put the right CD in there. You say, you know what? God has purposed for me to be a man of God right where I'm at. There are things I desire. There are things I'm longing for. But you know what? Wherever God's got me right now, I am going to give it my all. I'm not going to sit and whine and complain about all this other stuff that I don't have. I know this. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen again for me. I wasn't just baptized into his death. I was baptized. In, I was raised up into his life. And I'm going to live that life. And I'm going to trust that God's going to provide all my needs. You start playing the different CDs, you'll be unbelievably blown away by how you cultivate your soul into hope and into godly living and into what life is really supposed to be. And yet somehow we live these shallow lives and we get our butts kicked by the fleeting emotions of our heart and we just end up being like, well, how did I get here? Well, I'll tell you how you get there. You've been sitting on a garbage pile all your life. Feed your mind life. Let your mind disciple your heart and soul into life. You'll be quite amazed by the result. And to wrap things up here, let me just, let me just show you this in a bigger perspective. Um, Johnny, Johnny, your pastor, has been walking around with this little book called The Gospel Primer. I don't know if anyone's seen it, if he's given it to you. I saw he had a box of them in his, in his office, so go hit him up for one or two if you want to. It's a great little book. Get it on Amazon. This guy writes this book about, uh, it's called it's Milton Vincent's his name. And he writes this. He says, in most of Paul's letters, 
to churches, sizable portions of those letters are given over to rehearsing gospel truths, re-preaching the gospel, and then showing how it applies to life. This was Paul's chosen method for ministering to himself and to believers and thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and to other believers. That's how Paul would write. He would just rehearse the gospel and he'd say, now, get that thing going in your head and then the implications are thus. In view of God's mercy, he says, live your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll know his good and perfect will. He just gives you the truth and says, now run that through the system. Run that through the generator. And you'll be amazed at the fruit of that. Speaking to ourselves, preaching to ourselves is a powerful thing. I'll end with where the psalmist begins. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's his final weapon. He's honest. He remembers rightly. He uses truth and the gospel to cultivate hope in his own soul. But in the end, he says, I'm just longing for you, Lord Jesus. I just want more of you. I know that in the end, my only salvation, my only deliverance is in you, God. I will end with this great section of Scripture in Romans. Romans chapter 8. Let's just feed this to our minds. Let's just feed this to our souls as we leave. Verse 28, chapter 8. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many. Who's the firstborn? It's Jesus. He was the first to be resurrected into life. Who are the many? We are the many. That he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What should we say then? Shall we, what should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it that could condemn? Man, Jesus Christ, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from Christ, from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Even as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep 
to be slaughtered. No, 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 no. In all things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's saying something. Amen? All right, stand with me and let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the power of your gospel. Thank you for these ancient words, God, that seem so relevant to us today. It was almost like you wrote them to us this morning. God, I pray, Lord, that these words would be more than that to us, more than words, but God, that they would be to us strength, that they would point us, God, to life. And Lord, that we might see in our own lives the kind of maturity, the kind of strength that comes from living through this broken world, but cultivating and living in a sense of hope in the midst of it. God, help us to be honest. Honest about our circumstances, but honest about you as well and your unfailing love. God, help us, Lord, to remember right, not to just be totally contorted in our perspective when we go through these times. God, I pray that, Lord, you would help us through your truth to cultivate our own heart and our own soul into hope. And, Lord, we just seek to be with you as a deer pants for water. God, we thirst for you. And so come and be great among us, our Savior and our God. We pray this in your name. Amen.